Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Climate Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. Climate change has emerged as a major issue in U.S. electoral politics. Climate was in focus at June's Democratic presidential debates, where candidates offered early views of their climate policies. And climate action has become a litmus issue for a growing number of voters for whom climate now ranks alongside traditional issues like health care, jobs, and education. Yet while a growing number of voters demand that candidates prioritize climate, there's concern that the issue could also prove to be a political liability. Democratic Party leaders have rejected calls for a debate that would focus on climate change. At the same time, President Donald Trump has very publicly urged Democrats to focus on climate, seeing the issue as a potential Achilles heel for the party leading into the 2020 presidential election. On today's podcast, we'll take a look at a half century of public dialogue over environment and climate in the United States. We'll discuss the genesis of the public divide over climate change, where the divide stands today, and how it might influence next year's presidential election. Today's guest is Riley Dunlap, an environmental sociologist and regents professor at Oklahoma State University. Riley has studied Americans' attitudes on environmental issues for nearly half a century. He is a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science and former chair of the American Sociological Association's Task Force on Sociology and Global Climate Change. Riley, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So, Riley, I wonder if we could start out uh, by having you tell us a little bit about the field of environmental sociology. What exactly is it? Well, it's a pretty broad field, actually. It was established in the 70s, and we broadly construe it as a field that studies the relationships between modern societies and their environments. But specific things, there's a lot of it uh, are these. A lot of attention on the causes and the impacts and, to some degree, the solutions to environmental problems. But there's also a lot of work on, you know, public attitudes, the environmental movement, and these days uh, anti-environmentalism and, and climate change. A couple specifics to give you an idea when we talk about the causes of environmental problems. Environmental sociologists do a lot of cross-national studies where they get big samples over 100 nations, and they look at the characteristics of nations that are associated with smaller or larger ecological footprints are higher or lower carbon emissions, and they try to zero in on those factors that seem to increase these problems. On uh, looking at the impacts of environmental problems, a really key issue is the fact that, as now well known, most environmental problems uh, are not distributed equally or equitably. They tend to hit certain populations harder than others, typically poorer people, minority populations. And uh, these environmental justice studies are another key focus of environmental sociology, and they've become very sophisticated using GIS data and the like to really carefully map the the spread of environmental hazards and how they relate to uh, these uh, characteristics of people. So that's just some of the things we do. And, you know, the field just evolves over time from early emphasis on pollution, conservation, to nowadays, of course, global environmental change and climate change. 
Now, you've, you've been described uh, as one of the pioneers in environmental sociology, and, and, and the beginning of your career uh, really kind of corresponded with the first Earth Day and a time in American history when environmental issues were much less partisan than they are today. Can you tell us about your work specifically and, and how it's evolved over, over these years? Yeah, um, I was a grad student at the University of Oregon at the time of the 1970s, uh, first Earth Day. And there was a lot of talk then, you know, after the, uh, you know, the Vietnam War was going on, the protests, especially Cambodia, Kent State, we had the Civil Rights Movement. And there was this initial image of, oh my gosh, environmentalism, it lasts, it's like motherhood and apple pie, it's a consensual issue that's going to bring us together. So in my very first study, which was actually quite small in scope, I, I just did a, a study of college students, and I did looked at many things, but a key one was I was comparing self-identified Republicans and conservatives with liberals uh, and Democrats and so forth, because I really questioned that view. It seemed to me that environmental protection was obviously going to require governmental regulations. And on average, Republicans, conservatives have a more skeptical view of governmental regulations. They're more pro-business. So I expected to find some differences. And I did indeed among the students. Then I went on to do a dissertation looking at uh, the Oregon legislature comparing uh, pro-environment votes among Republicans versus Democrats, found Democrats significantly higher. Uh, then I quickly, uh, when I got a job at Washington State University as a faculty member in 1972, I continued this and did a study of Congress. In all these cases, while I didn't find the huge differences we see today, I always found that Republicans were statistically less supportive of environmental protection and so forth uh, that then were their Republican, uh, excuse me, their Democratic counterparts. And one of the nice things about academia, you you know, you can continue things uh, uh, when they're relevant. So over time, I've uh, focused more uh, attention on the environmental movement, uh, views of nuclear power, uh, got into international environmental attitudes. But the idea of political polarization has always been a key topic. And uh, my original interests have just come really risen to the fore. They're more relevant now than ever, given the extreme uh, partisanship we see today. So uh, that's how my interests have sort of evolved quickly. Well, yeah, over a half a century, the issue definitely has grown instead of uh, receding. And let's take a, a look specifically where we are today. So environmental issues and climate change specifically have become divisive in the United States, so much so that both Democrats and many Republicans would like to see climate given priority in the upcoming presidential election, although for very different and very opposite reasons. So generally speaking, what potential electoral advantages or perils do the parties see in the climate issue today? Well, it seems to me for the Democrats, uh, the big advantage is uh, to help mobilize younger people, uh, millennials and all the way, you know, teenagers, the folks that have really uh, been active in the climate change movement. We know from uh, surveys that younger generations in general are more concerned about climate change. 
And while they've been voting in higher proportions lately, historically they weren't voting. Um, you know, uh, you couldn't really re, uh, always depend upon them to turn out. So I think the Democrats can see that by emphasizing climate change, they can help mobilize a, a key sector uh, of the population, one that tends in general to lean heavily Democratic. Um, for the Republicans, you know, it's hard to figure out right now. Uh, you've got Trump, you know, attacking the Green New Deal and quickly being followed by many other Republicans and, you know, wanting to uh, cast this as some anti-American leading to economic disaster, et cetera, et cetera, and uh, thinking that perhaps um, this is going to help them with, with uh, many, many voters. And I think that some of the older Democrats in particular, uh, the party leaders are kind of cautious about that, being, you know, being painted as anti-jobs, anti-coal, all, all these kinds of things. However, the Republicans really have to worry about, as we always hear about, the suburban moms. And, of course, those people who live in areas... Uh, vulnerable to flooding and so forth. So I think it's kind of a complex issue for both. And uh, in general, though, I see Democrats putting quite a bit of emphasis on it and Republicans uh, trying to paint the Democrats, not, not so much attacking the idea of climate change directly, perhaps, although I expect the president to do that, but, um, you know, just attacking the Green New Deal is unrealistic. You know, so I wonder if you could take us back now to 1970 and, and talk about how environmental issues played out on the national stage at that time, when generally, as we've talked about, there was less partisan separation, and also when climate change wasn't yet an issue. Well, as, as I said in describing my own interest, you know, when uh, envir environmental issues really burst on the scene with that 1970 Earth Day, although they had been building, and... Uh, you know, just got uh, the environmental problems and protection efforts gained great momentum, and uh, the Earth Day just put them on the policy agenda. And around those years, seventy-nine, uh, excuse me, sixty-nine, seventy, we now look back. You know, to those Nixon years saw the Environmental Protection Agency established. A lot of many. Um, Landmark laws were passed and so forth, and there was relatively bipartisan support. But the, although the Democrats in Congress were always provided significantly higher levels of support, but the public in particular was expressing such high levels of support for environmental protection policies, and the environmental movement was really gaining momentum itself and becoming more and more influential that being viewed as overtly anti-environmental could really hurt a candidate. So we didn't see too much overt anti-environmentalism. And so I would call it muted bipartisanship, you know, uh, stronger support from Democrats, but not heavy opposition from Republicans. So in your view, when were the seeds of environmental partisanship planted and by whom? Well, I think to look at this, we just have to look at opposition to environmental protection policies to make sense of it. 
And from the outset, industry expressed a lot of opposition. Uh, it was based on economic self-interest. You know, uh, new regulations are going to cost us money. We have to improve our plants. And they were always posing the, you know, pollution control cost jobs uh, ideology out there. But there was also this element of opposition to the federal government and government regulations, which really um, became much stronger when Reagan came in, and he built on these sentiments. You know, Reagan was elected promising to get government off the back of industry. His famous mantra, you know, government's not the solution, it's the problem. This sort of planted the seeds of this anti-government ideology that's really um, grown over time. But the interesting thing is, Reagan came in so anti-environmental, you know, put James Watt in charge of the uh, Department of Interior to open up the public lands and Gorsuch at EPA, and we had these big scandals, and uh, it backfired, and there was really quite a backlash. If you look at public opinion on environment, it grew dramatically uh, during the Reagan years. So Reagan had to tone things down. It didn't cost him a second term, of course, but he did... um, you know, back off a little bit. And I would argue uh, that people learned from that experience that attacking environmental regulations head-on uh, doesn't perhaps work so well. But let's let's keep moving forward here. By the 90s, we get two really critical things. We get the fall of the Soviet Union, in 91, and immediately after that, the rise of global environmentalism signified by the 1992 uh, Earth Summit. and this The, the one began, in Rio. Yeah, the mm-hmm. Rio Earth Summit. And this really began to awaken another key element related to industry, but clearly uh, distinguishable, and that is the broad U.S. conservative movement, which was really taking off. And what I and others have argued is that literally the conservative movement with its staunch commitment to anti-regulations, limits on the government, became very aware of the implications of international environmental uh, regulations, of controlling carbon emissions, and they literally substituted a green scare for a red scare. And we saw the uh, key conservative think tanks, the Heritage Foundation and so forth, really starting to push anti-environmentalism, put out publications, uh, make this uh, part of their core agenda. And then next, in part uh, with, the, uh, with the help of the revved-up conservative movement, we got the Gingrich Revolution after that 94 election Uh, Gingrich and the Republicans take over the House of Representatives for the first time, and that really uh, ramped up partisanship, and it also uh, strengthened anti-environmentalism. So um, I think it's sort of these cumulative uh, events that uh, evolved, and Industry opposition has been a pretty much constant, although it's toned down in many ways. 
But the, the ideological part pushed by the conservative movement has become really, really uh, significant. You know, I'd like to talk about that decade of the 90s a little bit more. And first, before going into that, I'd actually like to step back to the 70s and the 80s. There's an interesting point that you brought up in one of the papers that you've, you've, uh, you've written over the years, that in the uh, late 1970s, um, Americans were actually becoming somewhat less concerned about environmental issues. And I recall that, that time as being the time that, for example, as you already mentioned, President Carter was kind of an early environmental advocate, at least, you know, in the in the presidency. And there's that famous uh, episode where he was uh, talking to the nation over national TV, wearing his sweater in uh, in the White House and talking about how America basically needed to tighten its belt on all issues, energy. OK. And then Reagan comes in in the early 80s, uh, implements or attempts to implement a number of anti-environmental policies and concurrent with that, Americans start to become more interested and more concerned about uh, uh, environmental issues. Is, is there kind of a, you know, a, a fear that Americans always think it's important, but uh, not so important, but if they see it dropping by the wayside, then their interest rises again? Yeah. For a long time, that was exactly the case. We saw this interesting pattern where under a democratic administration, when the public felt confident that there would be strong environmental regulations, strong enforcement, a public concern would sort of slack off. They weren't so worried. But Reagan came in, and uh, the environmental movement really uh, helped publicize, you know, the James Watt and Gorsuch uh, controversies. And the public all of a sudden thinks, well, you know, maybe we like this guy, but we like clean air or clean water. So public concern really came up. And then it, it continued under the first Bush. And uh, all surveys sort of basically indicate that 1990, the 20th Thursday, was sort of a peak of public concern for the environment in the U.S., but then Clinton-Gore uh, Clinton come in, and again, especially due to Gore's reputation, people think, oh, we don't have to worry about environment, and it goes down. So this pattern was going back and forth. But when the second Bush came in, it became, on the one hand, pretty clear that he was not an environmental president at all. But, you know, the uh, 9-11, the Iraq war, uh, just so dominated the the national agenda that I don't think environmentalists were ever able to do that good of a job of publicizing uh, the second Bush's very poor track record. So, so let me go back to that decade of the 90s for just a moment. You said something very interesting a few minutes ago. You, you said that when the, the, the Soviet Union collapsed in 1989, there was that external existential threat. Suddenly the, the needed, and if I'm I'm paraphrasing you, and if I'm paraphrasing you incorrectly, please catch me. But the idea here was that um, that external threat was gone. The new threat that people could rally around was this international climate uh, uh, process where you might have um, global rules around climate that would essentially be telling Americans what to do on that front. And, and that was a, a great rallying point for, for conservatives, if I understand correctly what you said. Yeah, it wasn't just climate. I mean, in uh, 91, environment 92, generally. it was 
you know, environmental issues uh, uh, more generally. But, yeah, you know, we, we would hear these stories coming out on, uh, you know, from the conservative media. The, there will be black helicopters from the U.N., you know, flying around, watching how much energy you're using and so forth. It was a real boogeyman, so to speak. Yeah. So, so, so in the 90s then, so again, as you said, in 92, there was the Rio de Janeiro Climate Summit. And that's the point where we really start to see U.S. waffling on a global stage on climate action. The first President Bush, who'd run in 1988 on a vow to tackle climate change, insisted that some of the emissions reduction targets set at Rio be weakened in the final agreement. And then half a decade later, Bill Clinton signs the Kyoto Protocol, but that agreement never even made it to the Senate for ratification based on concern that the protocol might harm the U.S. economy. So it seemed that the U.S. was already ceding potential leadership on climate in the 90s, though at this point it still wasn't wholly partisan. Yeah, it was pretty darn partisan, though. Um, If we look back, there's no question uh, things ramped up in the 90s. And again, you think... the more the conservative movement puts out anti-environmental uh, material, the more the GOP absorbs that, more, certainly more than um, the Democratic Party. So the partisan divide really grew in the 90s. If you, you know, the League of Conservation Voters gives these report cards based on how people vote. So as we enter the 90s, on average, uh, they, they were doing this since 1970. On average, the Republicans are getting scores in the 30% pro-environment, and Democrats are in the 50%. And then we see a real divide starting to emerge. As, uh, in particular, Republican scores start going down, down, down. And uh, the divide, again, we have to go back and uh, think about the Gingrich Congress and what a difference that made. And, you know, many political scientists uh, give him uh, a significant role in increasing partisanship, particularly in Congress. But there's another thing that's going on that adds to this. One of the things Reagan did was got rid of the fairness doctrine in media. So we get the emergence of talk radio, which, of course, really takes off uh, with conservatives, uh, Rush Limbaugh and so forth. And you begin in the 90s to get this consistent anti-environmentalism from Limbaugh and other uh, conservative media folks talking about environmental wackos, eco-Nazis and so forth. And they help, uh, and by late 90s, of course, this is really picked up by Fox and uh, Fox News, and they're just pushing a very consistent anti-environmentalism uh, message, and basically, it's pretty darn successful. They, they made environmentalists like feminists and even liberal a negative term in the eyes of many Americans, and, you know, being an environmentalist in the 70s was considered a good thing, but these days, not so much. So there's no question. Uh, I've uh, done some studies that looked at uh, putting out environmental, uh, the publication of anti-environmental books, and it really took off in the 90s among conservative think tanks. They're the key source of anti-environmental books, and they just zoomed up in 97 with the Kyoto Accord being uh, considered and so forth. Now, again, you've published a number of papers on these issues over the years. And, and one, that I, one point in one of those papers that I found amazing was that 
public understanding of climate change advanced, became more sophisticated, notably uh, over the first decade of, of this century or the new millennia, and notably in the wake of Al Gore's movie An Inconvenient Truth about climate change, which won an Oscar for Best Documentary in 2007. And what was surprising was that despite increased understanding of climate science during that decade, belief in climate change and human contribution to it actually fell, nevertheless. So what happened between 2000 and 2010? Well, several things. Uh, and if to answer that, I would like to back up just a bit. When I talked about um, uh, how Reagan's overt in, uh, anti-environmentalism backfired, one of the things people learned at that time was rather than attack regulations head-on, attack the evidence for environmental uh, problems, attack environmental science. We had had this tendency of specific industries attacking science that showed their their products being harmful, you know, asbestos, DDT, and, of course, tobacco. And the conservative movement and industry in general took on this uh, tactic of promoting uh, environmental skepticism and then climate change denial, uh, questioning uh, climate science in general. But we get into the uh, 2000, to come back to where your question begins here, and as I said before, George W. Bush comes into office, and it's pretty clear they don't have to worry that he's going to do anything. And the best way to think of this is climate change denial is a counter-movement. It works. It was formed and works to oppose uh, efforts to reduce carbon emissions. So under Clinton-Gore, they were very active. We've already talked about the 90s and how the conservative think tanks and industry were pumping out denial books, uh, all kinds of efforts. They backed off under Gore, but now to get to this key period you're talking about, excuse, they, they packed off of climate change denial. But now we get to 2006, the movie Inconvenient Truth comes out, and next year the book, then, you know, like you said, the Academy Award. There's also the fourth IPC assessment in 2007, which is, expresses more and more confidence in human contributions and it's global warming is uh, becoming more serious. So this is back on the public agenda now. And so we get what I call uh, kind of denial on steroids, that the counter-movement, which it felt comfortable under the second Bush, it felt like it was institutionalized, now came out of the closet and really began to attack climate science. It began to attack climate scientists. And if you look at these trends in public opinion that you started out with in your question, the decline that we see is primarily due to Republicans. The Democrats really didn't go down in their concern, uh, belief in the reality of climate change and so forth. But Republican uh, acceptance of climate change declined so much, it pulled public opinion in general down. You know, uh, another... Uh very interesting and counterintuitive finding uh, that came up in your research is, is that while liberals tend to have views more in line with consensus climate science as their own level of education increases, 
The opposite holds for conservatives, per your research. Why is that? Yeah, and it holds for liberals, conservatives, as well, you know, Republicans and Democrats, the, the party and ideology is so uh, highly correlated. Yeah, people talk about the political moderator effect, how our the effect of education on our climate change views is moderated by politics, our political outlook. And what uh, psychologists talk about is motivated cognition, and we all, all have a tendency to do this. Motivated cognition basically refers to the tendency to accept evidence that confirms and reject evidence which conflicts with one's prior political values, your beliefs, and so forth. And so it seems like among Republicans, as their education goes up, they're probably more likely to read things. They're more likely, perhaps, to engage the Internet. They're more likely to come across evidence, as they see it, on climate change. And they also have more confidence in their views. And so a college-educated Republican who's highly skeptical of climate change really believes they've got solid evidence for this. You know, they, they found these magazines, these websites, and so forth. And as an educated person, they, they know that they've made sense of this. Whereas you said for Democrats, it's the opposite is, is um, as education goes up, the more likely people are to express views agreeing with climate science. Okay, let's, let's, let's fast forward to today and start to take a look at where we stand today in terms of this divide in the country. And, and I just want to ask you a general question to start this out. You know, one way of looking at the climate divide is that it's a proxy for a whole bunch of social and political rifts that exist in the United States right now. What, what's your view on this? Yeah, yeah I, I would agree, although I, I would say it's just it's one element in this really wide uh, political rift, as we put it, social, political, cultural. And uh, I think to make sense of this, this is the way I see it, the climate change denial campaign, and again, this has been going strong uh, since the 90s. And uh, by the way, it just went, when Obama came in, it got much, much stronger. it's had a, quite an influence on the GOP. I mean, when you've got conservative donors, conservative media, uh, conservative think tanks all pumping out this denial information, it really impacts uh, people running as candidates in the Republican Party. It's become uh, almost a litmus test. If you're a Republican candidate, you probably are not going to express a lot of concern about climate change for fear of losing funding and support, maybe being primary. But among the broader public, this denial effort has also led, I would argue, to uh, a staunch Republican sort of adopting climate change as part of their um, climate change denial as part of their core identity as a Republican. I like to put it this way. Global warming is sort of join God, guns, gays, abortion, anti-taxes, uh, these days anti-immigration, is core components of a Republican identity. If you're a Republican, you're supposed to hold those kinds of things because that's what your fellow Republicans hold. 
and we see it's uh, really been strengthened under Trump. I mean, he has made uh, brought all-out anti-environmentalism back and made you know climate change as a hoax and so forth. And political scientists tell us that elite cues have an effect, and I think uh, this is trickling down to his supporters, and it's sort of reinforced by this whole idea of. Uh, you know, anti-elites and a lot. We, we distrust experts of any type, including scientists, and we just we just don't believe that kind of stuff. You know, we believe Trump. So it's really fed into that. And I would argue that kind of uh, supporting evidence is this. We've seen right-wing populist parties emerge around the world, particularly uh, in Europe, but in other parts as well. And almost always those parties tend to express some degree of climate change denial or skepticism. So it's not just here in the States. Yeah, something about that sort of populist, anti-expert, anti-elitist, etc. ethos that, you know, really provides welcome ground for climate change denial. You know, uh, another paper that you you wrote, and I've read 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 a few of them I- ahead of this this podcast, and they're very very interesting reads. And one that you wrote in in, uh, in 2016 uh, had a, a quote that I just wanted to read here, just a little quote. It says, "Individuals can hold relatively moderate positions on many issues, and yet be strong partisans, committed to keeping the other party out of office." Based on what we were just talking about right now. What might that mean looking to the 2020 election? Well, I, I think it has a, a lot of implications. And, and let me first start by kind of elaborating on this partisan identity uh, issue that I just uh, talked about in your prior question. It's extremely strong now. I mean, when when I was young, whether you were a Republican or a Democrat, what it wasn't that big a deal. You were more likely to think of yourself as a, you know, a mill worker or a father or uh, you know maybe Protestant. But now, being a Republican or a Democrat is a, a key identity to people, and that identity has uh, become very strong, and it's. Uh, reinforced by what political scientists call negative partisanship. You not only strongly identify with your party, but you see the other party as a real threat to the country. Often you see them as bad people. And I, some studies have shown, you know, if you're a Republican, you don't want your child to ma- uh, marry a Democrat, and increasingly vice versa. Well, you put all that together, the key concern, then, is to keep the other party out of power. So where this has implications is this. We're always hearing uh, talk about how actually a small majority of Republicans compared to a huge majority of uh, Democrats really are con- express some concern about climate change, and they're very supportive of renewables and so forth. But even if an individual Republican is concerned about climate change, but, you know, accepts the science, they are going to have a hard time turning around and voting for a Democrat. They're going to support the Republican candidate for Senate or House, or the president. And here's the thing. They will be electing people who will never take action on this. I mean, let's 
to get specific, if the Senate stays in Republican hands in 2020, Mitch McConnell will never even allow climate change legislation probably to the floor for a vote. So that's why I think it's, you know, it's so important that the partisanship overcomes concern about individual issues like climate change. And you keep voting the party line, and it has real consequences for what can be done about climate change. Looking again today where we stand, uh, it sounds like we've got very polarized public. People are very partisan, dedicated to the success of their own parties. And it would seem that then, as always, but the the votes that are in play are in the purple states and amongst the independents. And yeah. is... Are, are these people going to be swayed ahead of the presidential election, particularly on an issue such as climate? Will climate be a deciding factor for any of those people? Well, I, I personally hope so. Um, but I, I think, again, you know, we hear a lot about the suburban moms, for example. Uh, the other thing we hear about is, um, you know, independence and others living in vulnerable areas or places that are experiencing extreme weather events and so forth. So I would think that in many cases, climate change can be a positive issue for the Democrats in winning those people over. But um, again, climate change for most of those voters is just one of many issues and how they feel about abortion and guns and immigrants and so forth is is another. But, you know, I I think that climate change is clearly going to play a key role in Democratic primaries. If I could foresee how it's, uh, you know, the role it's going to play in the general election, I I guess I'd be a well-paid consultant in D.C. right now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think it comes down to this this issue of, of, uh, as you've written about, of salience, so people yeah. often talk about climate being a very important yeah. issue. Is it a salient issue yeah. when you come to the polls, when you have other concerns, such exactly. as economics and health care and whatever it may be? It sounds like that's, that's the key question here, right? It is. And just to jump back a bit with historical context, one of the things that we've always found is that no matter how high public support was for environmental protection, and again, it was very high in the 70s, peaked in the 90s, and so forth, it was a question of salience. Yes, the public is generally very pro-environment, but it's just not one of the top-tier issues. So what is so fascinating about the current situation, though, is that because of all these young, committed activists, and many not so young, they've really pushed climate change and climate change in general and environment more broadly um, clearly have far more salience for this election than they've ever had in the past. And uh, again, we're going to see that in the Democratic primaries. And can the Democrats keep it up? I don't know. I did find it interesting, you know, what was it, a week or so ago that uh, President Trump gave this talk about his great environmental record and so forth, and uh, which, of course, was truly Orwellian, given the people he's put in the EPA and other places, and uh, their efforts to deregulate. 
but this was attributed to pollsters telling him that uh, his anti-environmentalism was hurting him among, again, these suburban moms and independents and so forth. So it's hard for me to believe that uh, he would be able to whitewash his record. But again, in this modern era, when you've got a conservative echo chamber, you know, Fox and talk radio and so forth, uh, you know, what the typical Republican hears is pretty restrictive, you know, and it tends to be very positive. Now, uh, when it comes to independence again, uh, probably they are far less reliant on conservative media, and, you know, hopefully they'll get more objective data evidence both on what Trump has done as well as uh, the reality and seriousness of climate change. Well, it's interesting, uh, last point here, it's interesting you talked about uh, uh, the president's comments about a week ago, uh, but several weeks prior to that, uh, as I mentioned in the intro to our conversation, he kind of taunted um, uh, Democrats and said, come on, uh, essentially bring it on with, with the climate yeah. discussion because yeah. he sees it as, a, as a, a liability. So it sounds like maybe the Republicans aren't certain which way to go with that at this point. I would think, uh, I, I see there's, I don't think the president's really going to shift course. He may try to whitewash his record, but I think he's going to push you know, climate change denial and so forth and attack the Green New Deal and all that. I think the interesting thing will be to see what the rest of the party does. You know, as we've seen for two and a half years now, even uh, despite having qualms and all that, in general, they tend to follow suit. Uh, but, you know, individual Republican candidates, especially in areas vulnerable to flooding and so forth, uh, they may play things pretty differently. So I think... Uh, it would be quite interesting to watch individual uh, candidates uh, for Congress, uh, you know, for the House and the Senate. And uh, I, I do expect to see some variation among those from the national scene, just as, you know, uh, Democrats in coal areas and so forth. Uh, do, do you think that the Democrats, just jumping to the other side here, just uh, again as a very final, final question, do you think the Democrats will um, crank up the focus on climate or crank it down once it gets to the general election? Boy, I think, you know, sadly, it's going to depend a, too, a lot on polling and what they what they think uh, is this going to help us or hurt us more, but it's also going to depend then on the pressures from within. There's going to be so much pressure among Democratic constituencies to, uh, you know, to really push for strong climate change action. And in, in general, I expect the party to give it far more attention, the party platform and so forth, to highlight climate change a lot more than has ever happened in the past. Riley, thank you very much for talking. Well, you're very welcome. Appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. Today's guest has been Riley Dunlap. Regents Professor at Oklahoma State University. Thanks for listening to this episode of Energy Policy Now, which ends our third season of the podcast. We'll be on break during the month of August and back again in September with discussions that span the vast and ever-evolving world of energy and environmental policy. In the meantime, check out Energy Policy Now archives on the Climate Center's website iTunes, and other podcast outlets. The Climate Center's web address is climbingenergy.upenn.edu. Thanks for listening to the podcast, and have a great day.